0: On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up today, the robots picking strawberries.
2: They don't pick as fast as a human, but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage. (laughs) They're not a replacement for workforce, they're more of a supplement for your capacity on your farm and... Economically, it's a it's a reliable way of uh, of harvesting,
1: and they don't eat much as well. Also, the amazing jump in sheep numbers in Australia.
3: So we've got the flock forecast to grow to its highest level since 2007. Yeah. So in 2020, following the drought, the flock got to 64 million. So we've grown by nearly 15 million within the space of of four years.
1: Yeah, the amazing figures coming out from meat and livestock. Sheep numbers getting up to more than 78 million this year. That's the expectation. That's a lot of sheep. That story later in the program, and also the robots picking the strawberries on one North Tasmanian farm. That's happening at the moment. Uh, We'll take you there very shortly. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek Wednesday, which does mean the details of the latest livestock markets with Richard Bailey. Cattle prices likely taking a bit of a haircut. More details coming up. Also today, new trial sites being tested to grow peanuts in different areas of Australia. We all love our peanut butter. We'll check the weather, of course, with some hot conditions expected over the next few days. And we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 is that number. 0438 You may want to comment in our first story today about the use of the chemical glyphosate. there are serious questions about whether there will be enough food produced to feed the growing world population if Europe goes ahead and bans common weed killer glyphosate. That's according to Victorian-based crop scientist and consultant Harm Van Rees, who travelled to Europe and North America last year to look at what farmers are trying to do to manage reduced access to glyphosate. He says he expects glyphosate to be banned in the European Union this year, with big impacts on production to follow.
4: So there's big differences around the world, as we understand. I mean, there's very little pressure in Australia to look at the amount of glyphosate we're using. But, for example, in, in Europe, it is highly likely that the product will be banned this year. And that will have huge implications for us as well because, I mean, we export grain to the EU, so they've got residue levels. And, I mean, it's time... When there's that amount of pressure on particular chemicals around the world, then we should actually look at what we're doing at home as well.
5: What's that EU ban going to mean? I mean, what are the implications for global food security if if farmers are losing access to glyphosate?
4: Well, exactly. But the EU, it's such a wealthy continent. I mean, they're going to pay higher subsidies to their farmers. So already a significant proportion of farmers' income in the EU is from subsidies and subsidies will increase because all the farmers we met say they will lose production, but in income-wise, it's probably going to have a much less impact on them. And in Europe, there's still a lot of conventional farming taking place, so it's deep tillage, whereas in Australia, we're 100% no-till and min-till. And for us to lose glyphosate would be would be a much bigger impact than it has on Europe. Although most European farmers we met, except for the organic farmers we met, they do not want to use glyphosate because it is such a good product for them.
5: And what's it going to mean, I guess, for Australian production and access to those export markets if we're producing grain with glyphosate in the system? Are we eventually going to lose that access?
4: I haven't got an answer to that because that, that remains to be seen. But I can imagine if we put ourselves in the shoes of a European farmer, then they would be very unhappy if it was banned in Europe and they imported grain from jurisdictions around the world, Canada, the US and other places where it still be able to be used.
5: Is it... Worthwhile fighting back against moves to ban glyphosate, or, or, has, or has the argument already been had, and, and now it's about adapting.
4: Well, I think it's a bit of both. Whether we can persuade people in Europe that you know, ultimately voting for particular political systems to change their mind, well, that's unlikely. But in terms of How we treat that particular issue in relation with glyphosate and other farm chemicals is that I think there are things that we can do just to make sure that our practices are possibly, you know, are as good as they possibly can be. And Australian regulations already are pretty clear on the use of glyphosate, that it is safe to use it current systems.
5: Why is there this forensic sort of focus on glyphosate particularly when when we know there are other common farm chemicals which are much more toxic to human health but, but don't seem to be talked about anywhere near as much?
4: <laughs> well that's a very controversial issue and I think it's got a little bit to do with Monsanto and the way that Monsanto actually sold the product. I mean, people reacted to that and now we've got court cases in the in the US and they paid millions in dollars in compensation, billions of dollars in compensation. And that reverberates around the world and these are the consequences of those early on those actions early in the peace when glyphosate or Roundup was first released.
5: Just finally, Tom, um, to to summarise what would it mean? Can you sort of paint a picture about What would it mean in Australia, in the Australian context, if a glyphosate ban were to be put in place?
4: All the benefits from no-till farming, we'll lose those because there is no alternative to glyphosate. I know that we've got, obviously, we've got other products on the market that we have used in the past and continue to use, but some of those are already banned. For example, Paraquat has already been banned in most jurisdictions around the world, but we still have it. But none of those alternatives will replace glyphosate as it is. So it is going to be having a big impact on our farming system, especially on no-till farming. And we should be thinking about what can we do to replace glyphosate in case it happens. It's not a panic situation, but it's something that we should be thinking about at least in the short to medium term, to try and address some of the issues that people are going to have in other jurisdictions around the world when it's banned.
5: And how do you explain to a person on the street who who has nothing to do with agriculture about how important glyphosate is and I guess about, you mentioned politics earlier, about how, how their vote in, in certain voting settings can have implications for food security?
4: If I had the answer to that... <laughs> I'd be a very happy person. It, it's a really, it's it's a huge issue for the industry. But all I'm trying to say is, well, I'm trying to raise the awareness how big an issue it is. And I don't know what the answer to that question is. So we should be aware of these issues and start thinking about the long-term implications and how we can work with other. Nations where this is happening and other farming groups, but also in relation to what we communicate about current farming practices and all the benefits of no till to the general
1: populace. Yeah, that's crop consultant Harm Van Rees speaking with Angus Verley about the future use of glyphosate. He went to Europe last year and America and talked to farmers about how they were using the product and what was happening. You might have some thoughts on that. 0438 922 936 is our number. Just before we go to our next story, police and emergency services are responding to a multiple vehicle crash on the southern outlet heading southbound towards Kingston in the south of the state. Motorists are advised to avoid the area and expect traffic delays as the road is currently blocked. That's the southbound lanes on the southern outlet towards Kingston. Multiple vehicle accident there. Well, have you ever considered employing a robot in your business? With years of research behind them now, farmers are taking them seriously. A large berry farm in northern Tasmania has shipped 16 robots out from the UK to pick strawberries. Site manager Eva Tildechrist explains how they work.
2: A robot will... uh will uh, scan the crop and see if it can find any ripe berries, which is red berries of a certain degree that we have put in our settings. It will then try to find a clear vector so it can pick the berry, so it has to see the stalk clearly, and then it will attempt to pick it. Once it's picked the berry, it will dip it into a box in the middle of of the chassis, which we call the inspection chamber, which has a 360 degree camera, which take a photo all the way around that it would make a quality assessment and decide whether this is a good quality berry or if this has to be put in the waste bin. And after that it will put it in a punnet in the tray on the edge of the robot. So while it's scanning inside this uh, chamber, it will also do an estimation of uh, how heavy is the berry so it will know what punnet in the tray it will put it on to reach the target punnet weight. It travels on caterpillar tracks and uh, that way it can Move in quite difficult terrain, and you don't really have to prepare your, your ground for, to accommodate them.
6: How much manual labour do you need to, to check on the progress of the robots, like emptying the trays or if, if little issues crop up and they, they stop moving?
2: Not a whole lot. At the moment, we're managing eight robots per person. That's hopefully going to go up to 12 towards the end of the season.
6: How are they powered?
2: two strong batteries inside them, which uh, will give you a good good amount of... Uh, I think almost up to eight hours of running time. And then we will bring them back into a shipping container charging station and charge them overnight. They're all connected to uh, to a Wi-Fi system, but that's more for us to be able to to remotely control them from the operators having a tablet in their head and, and they can have a good overview of how the robots are doing. They know how many berries they pick. they know if it's time to swap the trays out and uh, they can identify any fault coming up. But they're running on a, on a computer inside them. They're not just picking as they run up the road, they're obviously taking loads and loads of images to find where the berry is, but that, those images can also be pro- processed to determine the health of your crop and also do yield forecasting so you know how much harvest you expect in the future.
6: They don't pick as fast as your staff here No. so what's the financial advantage to having these robots?
2: They don't pick as fast as a human but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage <laughs> to put it like that and they're not a replacement for workforce they're more of a, of a supplement for your capacity on your farm and economically it's a, it's a reliable way of, uh, of harvesting because you will know your cost of harvest because of the constant rate you're harvesting at and obviously having many machines per operator will also bring the cost down. It's a peace of mind for the growers to have in case you can get the workforce need. For example, last year we, when we had COVID, we just could not get enough people on the farm to do the work. And we struggled to keep up with the harvest. And obviously robots don't get COVID, they don't roll an ankle, they, they're pretty reliant workers.
6: How often would the robots make a mistake? Pick a berry that's the wrong colour, for example.
2: At the moment we're seeing about one every hundred berries, which is very, very low compared to human pickers. They do probably rather miss a few berries, which is something we're always working on, but they seem to pick a good good quality. It's a work in progress. It's... it's it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's, it's something that gradually is going to be introduced into farming. I believe, uh, same as uh, 150 years ago, no one would use a tractor or consider using a tractor for farming, and now it's a part of everyday farming life. So I think it's a natural progression, but it's, yeah, it will happen gradually. It's going okay. Yeah. Yeah. Picking good quality. Yeah.
7: For today is better.
2: Yeah.
7: Picking a good quality.
2: And all the robots are going. You have six.
7: Yes, I have six in this team,
2: but yeah, all, all of Going good? All good? Very good. Good job.
7: My name is Giardo Santos. I'm from Timor-Leste. My role here for the moment is uh, working with the robot team.
6: So what do you do? What What have you got in your hands?
7: Oh, it's a tablet that we are using to monitor how the robots are working. If something's wrong, then we have to just check it from the tablet. OK. It says here, the robot 439 has some problems, so we need to fix it. We cannot fix it from a uh, tablet. We need to go and check from the robot itself.
6: And you can pinpoint whereabouts it is in, on the farm here in the tunnels?
7: Yes, yes, The because we have the different numbers for each robot, so we know exactly where they are.
6: How do you compare this work to picking the strawberries?
7: Picking the strawberries sometimes is good, how you get the uh, quantity of fruit, but with the robot, sometimes it's fun because it's really kind of
6: picking most uh, of the
7: good fruit. And it must
6: be exciting to see this kind of technology working in the field. Oh, exactly. <laughs> you know, for
7: us, like, uh, we're coming from a country that, you know, the agriculture of the farms is working like most traditional way. When we came here, we see things that are more modern, Especially the robot, it's kind of something that's really, really excited to learn.
6: I'll let you get back to it.
7: Thank you very much.
6: What's next for these robots? What could they do in the future?
2: We are currently in the UK uh, trialling night picking, which would be a game changer with harvest, as when you pick the berry at a cooler temperature, you will extend considerably and extend the shelf life. So each uh, of these picking arms by the camera are equipped with LED lights, as well as a few different few other lights on the chassis. And as they go along at night, they can they can pick and identify the ripe and good quality berries in a much better way than a hu- human would ever possibly be able to, even though a human equipped with a headlight or other kind of lighting.
6: And the benefits of picking at night?
2: Theoretically, you could keep you could keep picking on a 24-hour cycle, but also, but mostly the shelf life. And especially for us in Australia, where the hot days really are struggling for, for the berries, we have to pick them as quick as possible and quickly get them into the cooling room of the packhouse. And if you do it at night, you have a lot more flexibility on, on that aspect.
6: And you're originally from Sweden. What led to this this change in scenery for you?
2: Well, I actually came over here to work with horse racing. <laughs> originally, I wanted to be a jockey, but that's beside the point uh, but I also did a software engineering degree and while uh, while Covid I couldn't really move around too much so I asked for a job here and they put me to work at what I'm good at and later I got drafted by Dogtooth so they keep me plenty busy with technology. <laughs>
1: It's Eva Tilda Christ, site manager at Burlington Berries in the north of the state with UK robot developer Dogtooth Technologies chatting there to Larissa Smith, the robots picking the strawberries. And you heard the noise of the robots in the background. That will replace cows and sheep in the future. That's the noise you will hear. Uh, coming up on the country, our new trial sites to grow peanuts in Australia.
8: Drive with Kylie Baxter. Women with ovarian cancer is an area that we don't often like to talk about. In fact, when I first started with She, people were asking me, how do you feel about talking about vaginas? Certainly that was quite confronting as a conservative bloke. We've got to create greater awareness around this silent killer because it's it's
9: taking far too many um, of our mums and our sisters and wives. etc.
8: Drive, weekdays from 4pm on ABC Radio Hobart.
0: Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Peanut butter. It's an Australian pantry staple, but Australia imports more peanuts than it grows. A trial is underway on farms across northern Australia, which could give growers an extra revenue stream if they plant peanuts. Megan Hughes with that story.
0: It's been a long-held dream of the peanut industry to have a 100% Aussie-grown crop, but it's never been feasible. But what if growers could use more of the plant and get more money for it? CQ University researchers are in the second year of a trial to use the top of the plant, also known as the biomass, as livestock feed. Senior lecturer Tina Katrotter says it's showing some promising results.
10: We're really excited with what's happened after this first year of trials. Uh, It's great to see some of the data coming in and it's really exciting to see that from taking an in-season cut of biomass that could be taken as cut and carry hay or could potentially in the future just be a livestock graze and the use of that biomass for livestock, that treatment has actually not had a particularly negative effect on the nut quality and yield that we're seeing at the end of the season.
0: What's the benefit of
10: of having a crop that is dual purpose? There is a value that can be taken from the crop early in the season. So that's money in a farmer's pocket. Uh, before waiting the the maybe five months before you get a a final product. The value that we're getting out of dual-purpose peanut crop is that the biomass itself is uh, really um, high in nutrients, it's high in protein, and so it's a really good uh, feed for livestock, and so that can help to improve meat quality, um, and that's that's another key benefit, particularly of this crop that we're looking for, for northern Australia.
0: The peanut crops have been grown in Catherine in the Northern Territory and Emerald, Home Hill, Tully and Georgetown in Queensland. Emerald-based grower Aaron Kylie is taking part. The first year they planted 13 varieties of peanuts, but now it's been narrowed down to just two. And while you need sunny skies for harvesting peanuts, Mr Kylie says the recent wet weather is appreciated for growing them.
11: By so the end of last season we had two lots of rain on trying to dig, so you lose peg strength digging those peanuts. and then So this season's been a good start because they're planted and we've had had over 80 mil of rain, so yeah, they should power out of the ground.
0: Australia imports thousands of tonnes of peanuts each year from countries like Argentina. Peanuts have been grown domestically since the 1800s, but a commercial industry was only established in the 20th century in Kingaroy in the South Burnett. Now, they're also grown as a secondary crop for sugarcane farmers in Bundaberg. But why have efforts by peanut butter giant Bega Foods not been successful in establishing a fully homegrown crop? In Emeralds in the Central Highlands, peanuts used to be popular, with over a 1,000 hectares of land planted out at its peak, according to Mr Kiley. One of the
11: biggest, I suppose, issues has been the water availability in the Central Highlands over the last six or seven years. And that's where the hectares has dropped off and also with, you know, citrus growing throughout the region. So a lot of that red soil that was under centre pivot is being taken into citrus. So that's taken a few, you know, a fair few hectares out of that, that market in the Central Highlands. But there is still growers that have, will have opportunity to grow them into the future.
1: That's Erin Kylie, a peanut grower, ending that report from Megan Hughes on more trial sites to grow the peanuts and stop... All those imports will not stop them, but maybe uh, equity with them. Well, for the past past few years, there's been a real push to develop leadership skills in Tasmania's dairy industry. Farm manager Troy Ainsley says he's had some good mentors across his career and wants to help guide others up the management ladder. He's just picked up a scholarship to attend a Marcus Oldham leadership course.
9: Uh, I grew up um, in a farming family. Uh, My parents were share farmers for a lot of years, so that's... Sort of been born and bred on the, on the dairy farm, so yeah.
6: And where was the farm?
9: Uh, in Circular Head.
6: And then yeah. over a period of time, you obviously moved from property to property to, to get more experience?
9: Yeah, so after being in Circular Head, uh, most of my younger childhood, 25, um, me and my wife and our kids, we moved to the northeast of Russia Lagoon, had um, a bit over two years up there farming. Then I made the choice and came back to Elizabethtown, um, where I took on a, on a management role there. Yeah, I was there for six years uh, on a large dairy and beef operation. And yeah, then after six years, we thought, well, maybe we'll go it on our own. So we took on a management role with uh, Compass Taz at Cressy.
6: And who were your mentors during that period?
9: Uh, my father was the main well, he was a big one early on in life. Um, Paul Bennett, he was a, he was a big influence um, and a great mentor for me, not only in the farming, but personal as well, which has been great. And now the company we work with, Compass Taz, you have a couple of great mentors, Ryan Ashby and Nigel Pennant. They're pushing me to better myself all the time. Um, so I suppose that's sort of which has led to us uh, for this conversation on the scholarship.
6: Yeah, so you applied for the scholarship and you've been successful to undertake this leadership uh, course at Marcus Oldham. What do you hope to get out of it?
9: Uh, A a fair bit of self-growth. We've we've all got to keep evolving and I didn't want to just, I don't want to just stay doing what I'm doing as a farm manager. I want to help out the industry. So I thought what better way to do that than a leadership course. I thought that's a a great stepping stone to, to start heading the direction that where I want to be.
6: And do you think that's a real issue for the the sector in that you've got a bunch of people coming through the ranks and they're not sure where they want to take their careers in dairy? Maybe there's a knowledge gap there and in order to retain them, you need to give them an incentive to grow. It's a bit of a crossroads, I think.
9: Yeah, spot on. There seems to be a big gap between people that are a, a farm hangs or even two ICs. To a big gap to share farmers or managers. People have a false pretense that you've got to be a farmhand and then you have to be a share farmer. You, you don't. There's a lot of other different stepping stones in the middle that you can go through and be very successful without actually having to, to be the owner.
6: And you don't necessarily have to have a university degree in, in business management to do this?
9: No, a lot of it you'll you learn as you go. You know, I started out. Um, like I said, as a family farm, I'm actually a, a baker by trade. <laughs> and then I went back to the farm and it's just over the years, the, the more stuff you learn, the more courses you do. What Dairy, Taz and Tia provide for people in the industry, different courses and discussion groups and stuff, It's you just learn on the way. And then if you find a, a good mentor that will teach you that sort of stuff is into the business side of things, is great. I think the biggest thing is you've got to stick at it. It's not going to be overnight success. You've got to stay at it and and just keep learning, keep evolving, and and the more you learn, the better off you'll be. But a good mentor has has helped me, and's got gotten me to with the position I'm in now, which has been great. It's really hard without a good mentor, and once you do find one, you want to hang on to them.
6: How's the farm set up for autumn?
9: Yeah, growing really well uh, as everyone did. I think most people in the state had a, a wet start to the season, but good consistent growth rates now. With the weather we've had, hasn't been over hot, which is which is good. Uh, been a late late season as maturing. Grass has, has come a bit late. Used to, but I think a lot of people are getting well set up for the autumn.
6: There's some good talk around uh, the milk companies about some positive pricing too,
9: and that that always helps everything. Uh, Everyone's in a good mood with the milk prices up. It just takes the pressure off stuff. So as long as people can capture that and make the most of it, um, it's great.
1: Troy Ainsley, Farm Manager at Wood Rising Dairies at Cressy. Chatting there to Larissa Smith about the importance of professional development in the dairy industry, which will be the focus of what's happening on the country uh, tomorrow and Friday at the National Dairy Conference happening in Hobart at Rest Point. Meg Powell and Fiona Breen will be there to bring you the latest. Uh, looking forward to that tomorrow. Now, still to come, the latest on the Varroa mite incursion, the boom in sheep numbers and the livestock markets with Richard Bailey,
11: plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Will Murray. G'day, Tony. The Governor of the Reserve Bank says he accepts recent decisions to increase interest rates haven't been popular, but insists they've been based on a wide range of evidence. Philip Lowe has faced sustained criticism for the RBA's decision to increase interest rates nine times in a row, adding hundreds, if not thousands, to monthly mortgage repayments. Dr Lowe says lifting rates are the best way to tackle surging inflation while accepting it causes pain for many Australians. The White House says there's no indication three flying objects shot out of the sky are linked to alleged Chinese spying. It says they may be tied to commercial or research entities. US and Canadian officials have not yet located or recovered any wreckage from the three downed aircraft. Antonia News just in, police remain at the scene of a multiple vehicle crash on the southern outlet heading towards Kingston. The road is reduced to one lane and it may take several hours to clear the scene. Motorists are asked to to avoid the area if possible. And at this stage, no serious injuries have been reported.
1: Thank you, Will. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather from Michael Conway from the bureau. G'day, Michael.
12: G'day, Tony. How are you going? Ah, oh, well, thanks. Yeah. yeah,
1: and some warm weather coming up. Is there any rainfall anywhere?
12: Not much uh, to, to speak about for uh, the next three days and into the weekend. Uh, the we're just. There's a chance of a little shower tomorrow, so today's completely fine. Tomorrow there's a chance of a little shower from a mid-level trough that comes through uh, in the west and the south of the state, Uh, but if it does, it'll be less than a millimetre, very, very light on. Uh, And then on Friday there's a chance of a thunderstorm or a shower developing in the afternoon and evening mainly about the south-east and the south of the state, uh, it, they could be dry thunderstorms as well, because it's pretty high-based uh, thunderstorms. Um, that, so that's a bit of a concern for fire weather. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So not much in terms of rain.
1: Okay. So you're talking about um, the uh, the dry thunderstorm with the lightning and possibility of starting some bushfires in areas we don't want them started.
12: That's right, yeah. So uh, Friday, hopefully that won't happen, but um, there's a chance of it.
1: Okay. Into the weekend, what's going to, going to be the situation with the weather?
12: Yeah, well, we're going to be getting a westerly change on Saturday, um, and there will be some um, showers developing about the west, so looking like a bit of rain, so but. bit 10 to 20 millimetres is possible at the west and far south on Saturday. It's going to spread across the state and it looks like there could be a few light showers about for the rest of the state. Sunday again a few showers in the west but not much in it, um, uh, two or three millimetres maybe um, in the west and the northeast of the state. But that's about it for, for rainfall.
1: OK, and what sort of temperatures are we looking at uh, getting to over the next few days, especially heading into Friday
12: yeah well we've got a um, low intensity heat wave for, for the whole state basically for Wednesday through to Friday that's even um, severe about the northeast uh, the northeast district and the east Coast districts. There's a severe um, uh, heat wave warning out for those and the temperatures are going to peak probably on Friday, but it'll be um, high 20s on Thursday for most for lots of places around the state, and on Friday it could get up. Um, quite a few places probably get above 30, so high 20s to early 30s on Friday. Yeah.
1: And you mentioned the uh, heat wave warning. Any other warnings?
12: No, zero warnings right at the moment, Tony. So pretty light on.
1: Okay. With wind. So what's happening out on the coastal waters with the swell as well?
12: Yeah, sure. So the winds today, we, it's uh, generally north northeasterly at 10 to 20 knots, although tending northwestly uh, down, the, down the west coast. And sea breezes around tomorrow. We're, not, we're looking at northwest to eastly winds, again 10 to 20 knots. although about though near 10 knots about central east and the northeast of the state, and the sea breezes again. The swells around uh, for t- in the west and the south for today and tomorrow. We've got a west to southwesterly swell at around two to three meters. In the north of the state, we've got a uh, north-eastly swell less than a meter for today and a westly swell of less than a meter as well for today and tomorrow. And in the east, there's an east and northeasterly swell of one to one and a half metres today, dropping to around less than one metre tomorrow. There's also a southerly swell of less than one metre in the east.
1: And the wave riders?
12: Cape Sorrel is at 1.9 metres at the moment and uh, Marara Island is at 1.2.
1: Beauty, Michael. Thank you for that. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. Cheers. Michael Conway from the Bureau.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: The latest information on the weather for you. As Michael said, heatwave conditions over the next few days. In the state? 0438 922 936, that text line number if you'd like to stay in touch. OK, let's go to Senate estimates now. And authorities say the pest, Varroa mite could have been in Australia for up to a year before it was detected in New South Wales. The bee pest was first discovered in the port of Newcastle in June last year. There are now 112 premises that have been infected since. At Senate estimates last night, Green Senator Peter Wish-Wilson questioned Dr Chris Locke from the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry about the response and in the investigation into the Varroa outbreak.
13: The eradication response still falls under the national agreement that it's uh, that's so subject to decision making by the national management group, which I chair. It's met now four times on Varahmite. The last time was last Friday. Uh, New South Wales still view eradication as possible, and there's been some positive developments uh, over Christmas with the opening up of hive mobility opportunities outside the. The containment zone in the sort of general zone. Could I just drill down onto that? Sure.
14: Word possible. Um, would they view it as probable? Because I do think, the, yeah, eradication. Though, obviously, yeah. there's, there's <laughs> yes. debate between containment versus eradication. But the Commonwealth last time, if I remember rightly, thought eradication was.
13: It is. It is the view likely. of the um, National Management Group, which includes all states and territories and the Commonwealth and there's about 15 industry participants that eradication is still possible.
14: That, that is...
13: It, it is possible. It's yeah. possible, but yeah. is, it, is it probable? Well, it's still, it's still the preferred approach which yeah. the strategy is supporting, yep.
15: There are now 112 infected uh, premises and mm-hmm. so the number has um, climbed a little bit but uh, it's remained stable in the last week there were a few detections recently, um, and uh, most of By those. A few.
14: Could you just give us the number again? Oh, oh I did read it. It went account. from
15: about 106 to 112, okay. and the identification of these new premises um, was a result of intensive surveillance within the 10-kilometer eradication zone around infected hives.
14: When you say surveillance, we're uh, um, talking about private property here. Are we also talking about traps in uh, in national parks? And and reserves and other
15: They've all been linked properties. There has been some detections which are a result of very localised spread, but there hasn't been any um, detections in national parks that we've uh, been made aware of.
14: We know there was an investigation, a joint investigation underway between Commonwealth and the New South Wales Government as to how this happened. Are we any closer to announcing...
11: Uh,
13: yes, so, Senator, um, so we have been talking to New South Wales about that and because and, uh, they've been leading the investigation, doing the interviews and doing the genomics testing and, and trying to interpret uh, likely causes of, or sites and durations of the incursion. As was presented to that inquiry, it, it is going to be imprecise, I think, the answer, but they're working on a number of different hypothesis, hypotheses at the moment, trying to narrow that down. Uh, I think the things they're seeing at the moment is, you know, it was in the country before it was detected on the 20, Correct. 22nd of June. Maybe could even be a year or so before that, but we're trying to kind of provide that information. Uh, they will be doing, they are doing compliance work as well, so there's, there's a potential that some of the things they cover, uncover by their tracking and tracing and interview work might lead to compliance activities. So there is a bit of sensitivity from a compliance angle as to what goes into the public domain but we're trying to respond to that request uh, in the um, inquiry recommendation to certainly make it very clear what we know and what New South Wales Government knows.
14: So there's no investigation into a breach of biosecurity acts, federal, federal or otherwise. There's no nothing's been referred to uh, So
13: they're looking at about five or six different scenarios. So whether it came in by air, by port, whether um, it by came mail, off a hive by a mail. Yeah. So so exactly. So there's about five or six scenarios with different levels of likelihood that they're exploring and equating to the data they have. I think uh, the sense is it's not going to give an unequivocal answer, but it might. Is that, say does that something. satisfy
14: you, Doc, Dr Locke, given this is a very serious outbreak in the first well, of its kind?
13: Well, I guess it's, um, it's whether whether they can answer the question or not mm. is really the question. So, I mean, it satisfies me that they're trying very hard to get to the bottom
1: of it. Dr Chris Locke, he's the Deputy Secretary for Biosecurity and Compliance at the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, talking to Senator Peter Wilson, Tasmanian Senator. And other departmental staff also appearing at the Senate Estimates in Canberra last night, talking about the latest information on the Varroa mites. A winery in Western Australia's southwest has cloned one of Margaret River's most famous red wine varietals. And the breakthrough is expected to benefit the whole Australian wine industry. David Bodding is Chief viticulturist at Howard Park Wines in Margaret River. He says he's gone to a lot of trouble to get this right, and he's pleased with the results.
16: Okay, this is a block of Cabernet, but it's a, a highly replicated trial field site for testing the difference between individual clones of Cabernet Sauvignon. So there's 14 clones replicated 14 times. It's like having 196, if you do the maths, separate little vineyards within a vineyard.
15: Wow. Can you just explain the concept of cloning? What actually does that mean?
16: Okay, by strict definition, a clone is... a a selection from amongst uh, genetic diversity to identify one individual with a set of genetic characteristics, which are then propagated and build up. So grapevines are propagated by vegetative means. So it means if you can zero down in on one vine and it does what you want, you can take that one vine and then build a whole new industry around that one. Yeah. that one vine.
15: Interesting, so what aspects are you looking at? Is it the the flavour of the grapes or the durability of the vine for example?
16: The main point about this site is it's a, a field trial site that we've gone to a lot of trouble to set it, set up so we can, we know we've got control of soil variables and other things and we've eliminated uncontrolled variables and that actually means that we can learn a lot of things from this vineyard over the long term. Mm. So that's a long answer to your question. Yeah. Right right now we're measuring how the vines are performing during the growing season and we're making controlled wines to get an early view of how the wines are are showing up.
15: And there have been clone trials done in the past, so how does the one that you're doing here how is it different?
16: Okay, this this is another unique thing about this site, it's probably one of the rare sites or occasions where clones, which are the product of vine improvement at all parts of the world, have actually been brought together on one site and evaluated side by side. So the producers are making decisions around which clone to use have only been able to rely on the results of the selection improvement at their point of origin Mm. and then try and second guess what that means for their vineyard and their site and so on. So this site will ultimately provide a set of data which they can rely on. It's got strong statistical underpinning and for Margaret River for this range of clones can make sound choices if they choose to either one or a combination of them.
15: Yeah, so why is this sort of research important?
16: The whole industry's been evolving and growing up, so this was preceded by comparisons of clones in different places in Australia, but that can only take you so far because you're not comparing on the same site and the same variables. So this is the next step, and it's putting them all in the one spot and comparing them like for like.
15: It sounds like the Margaret River region will probably benefit the most from the data that you collect.
16: In two ways, because the trial is actually in Margaret River, so there's direct you know, applicability. Uh, but in terms of everybody else, there's all that relativity between the clones that makes sense to anybody anywhere.
1: It's Chief viticulturist from Howard Park Wines, David Bodding, talking clones with Virginia Hargraves in Margaret River, saying their research will benefit all areas of the Australian wine industry. We've got Richard Bailey coming up for you very shortly, uh, talking about a haircut that the uh, cattle prices took yesterday at Powrenner. That story in just a moment, but sheep numbers first. And the numbers of sheep in Australia are about to hit a 16-year high as better weather and genetics result in a massive flock rebuild. In numbers from Red Meat Research and Development Organisation Meat and Livestock Australia, the Australian sheep flock is set to hit 78.75 million head in 2023. Senior Market Information Analyst Ripley Atkinson says that will mean nearly 15 million more sheep than just three years ago.
3: The projections we've released today for sheep are really optimistic and and the outlook's quite positive. So we've got the flock forecast to grow to its highest level since 2007 and as a result of that, we are forecasting record land production and exports to eventuate this year as well.
8: 78.75 million head of sheep in Australia. How much higher is that than than the lowest over the last uh, decade or so how low did the flock get
3: yeah so in 2020 following the drought the flock got to 64 million so we've grown by nearly 15 million within the space of of 4 years that's an
8: incredibly years. quick turnaround
3: yeah and we've also got to remember three la ninas now that that doesn't directly um affect overall performance but it's the first time or the third time in 50 years we've had three consecutive La Niñas. We had a really strongly correlated negative IOD last year which supported that improved winter dominant rainfall for, for Australia's sheep producing regions as well. So there's a lot of those factors as well as water and grass availability which are underpinning it too. When you look at
8: the map of Australia, are there areas where sheep are growing faster than others?
3: We know the last two years, particularly the key states of New South Wales and Victoria have done a lot of the heavy lifting. But this year we are expecting other states, such as Queensland or the other states, Queensland, South Australia tassie and western australia to contribute and grow more substantially new south wales and victoria as i mentioned have have driven the rebuild into growth and now we expect those improvements to continue to come more substantially from the other states
8: so what's behind this is it weather or is it price
3: weather is the key driver um you know of of how the the markets performed and how we've seen that really strong improvement in numbers and what weather has done for Australian sheep producers is is given those optimal conditions for reproductive performance for those females. You know, there, there was a lot of ewe lambs joined um, and there continues to be every year, a lot of ewe lambs joined. The um, availability of grass and water supports better marking rates, which is giving us larger lamb crops. And then, you know, also beyond that, but that medium term confidence promoted by price is incentivizing producers to grow their numbers to capitalize on, on where the market sits. And then, obviously, as well, that international demand.
8: Was the growth here in the meat sheep side of the industry or the wool sheep side of the industry?
3: We know through the October wave of the uh, Sheep Producer Intention Survey or well, Merino Genetics account for 70% of Australia's breeding ewe flock. So there's still the vast majority of where th- that increase in numbers will come from, but we have seen increases and, and the survey's data is telling us that, not necessarily projections, that we are seeing increases in first cross pure meat breeds, shedding breeds and dual purpose as well. So the growth obviously is is widespread and it's across all, all different breeds.
8: And then it comes down to, to the, the slaughter of sheep as well. Has that slowed as the flock rebuild has been on?
3: It has, yes. It did slow, particularly in 2020 into 2021. We saw improvements last year, particularly in lamb slaughter, and then into 2023 in our forecast moving forwards, we're expecting record lamb slaughter for 2024 as well.
8: So uh, sheep will start returning through the through the markets, through the abattoirs as the flock gets to this larger size?
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely for both for both mutton and lamb. So we're expecting a 24% increase in uh, mutton slaughter this year as those producers have the luxury of – turning off non-performing females or, or cast for age use um, as well. So we're going to see an uptick in in mutton slaughter and then the lamb slaughter, because of those uh, fundamentals I spoke about earlier, delivering a larger lamb drop, we're going to see an increase to the fourth highest lamb slaughter on record in 2023 as well.
8: So it sounds like there's going to be a lot happening in the sheep industry so forth. Will that put pressure on prices if the slaughter numbers are going to be so high?
3: The, the the situation um, occurring at the minute, when you look at prices year on year um, across most categories, bar mutton are actually performing relatively relatively firm, and they're still operating in line with the five year average. In terms of what that looks like for the next twelve months, um, we don't know. We don't know what that means, but the international demand and the international space does play a role in how domestic lamb and mutton prices perform and there are strong indicators of improved demand as a result of a number of different factors which do point to supporting our domestic um, lamb and mutton prices.
1: Ripley Atkinson, Senior Market Information Analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia, talking there to Warwick Long about the big growth in sheep numbers. Expect to hit around 78.75 million head uh, later this year. Okay, time now to head out to the livestock markets and how the see how the sheep and cattle are selling. With Richard Bailey, how are you, Richard?
17: Going well, Tony. Going well. Looks like we're in for a few hot days, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, that uh, that uh, should be much needed. Uh, what was it like at Power Annie yesterday?
17: Yeah, quite a few more cattle. One hundred and thirty-one trade and grown cattle. Um, market was generally cheaper across the board. The very best yearlings still sold pretty well, and the cows weren't too much affected, but certainly some of the grown steers and bullocks were a lot cheaper. Um, most yearling steers made 370, the better yearling steers made 370 to 396, and then the second 300 to 320. The best heifers topped at 388, and most made 286 to 312. A lot of them, you know, not, not in your top-class uh, butcher-type type cattle but they, uh, most of those went to kill. Um, then into the grown steers, there's a lot of grown steers made anywhere from 282 to 380, big big range but it depended on quality there a fair bit. And heavy bullocks, uh, 250 to 280. Now I reckon it's only about a month or six weeks ago that those cattle were making closer to 350 in that sort of bracket so that's a fair. A fair haircut there. Um, most of the cows were pretty good quality, heavy cows, and they made 240 to 266, average about five cents less than last week, but still um, held up pretty well. And just a few heavy bulls, 220 to 228 cents a kilo. Just on cattle on Thursday tomorrow, we have a store cattle sale at Piranha. It looks like there'll be about 2,000 cattle. We have We've sort of gone from 1,200 to 1,500 to 1,700, and I think we're going to be closer to 2,000 now. And then next Thursday... Thursday week, we start the weaner sales and AWN start on that first Thursday with over 2,000 cattle, so we're in, and then we've got weaner sales in apart from one week, the following week, and then we've got four weeks in a row through March of weaner sales, so um, that'll be pretty interesting times, I reckon.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the word haircut there, Richard, you usually get a haircut when it's needed, is that the situation here?
17: Um, don't know I'm, I, I I'm struggling a bit with this, but the, the, these uh, these cattle prices, um, given that the season's so good everywhere, obviously the, the general consensus, I think, among the processors is that they're struggling to sell it at the other end. Um, I, I think quite a lot of the processors have got quite a few cattle around them, so it's a supply and demand situation as well. And I think as we've spoken about for a few weeks now, there is some concerns as to whether or not our processing sector will be able to handle the extra numbers because of the, you know, the bigger flock, a bigger herd that we've we've now got. So um, interesting times ahead. It's not all doom and gloom by any means, I mean. um, But uh, it's certainly come off those heady days of... um, last year and certainly mid-last year.
1: Okay, and as we prepare to uh, look at the lamb and sheep markets, we just had that story from MLA about uh, nearly 15 million more sheep in uh, the past three years and the flock set to hit 78.75 million head this year. That's a lot of sheep.
17: Yeah, it is. Um, I'd be interested to know how it compares with the 80s and 90s. I would have thought that it's still a fair way off. Where we were then, obviously the mix is going to be a fair bit different. Um, there'll be a lot more um, shedders and and um, um, fatland producing sheep than there were back in those days. but yet yeah, no, a big increase. just remember though that over the last three years we've had the drought in in New South Wales where a lot of these sheep. Uh, live. Um, you know, we, we had a major drought through that sort of three or four year period. And so yep. over the last three years, that's that's uh, we've come out of that. So um, I don't think it's unexpected.
1: And with the prices then at Parenna? Uh,
17: yesterday for sheep, we had uh, 1,128 lambs. This market was cheaper across the board. And anywhere from sort of 10 to $25 cheaper. Admittedly, the Quality was nowhere near as good as last week, and not much weight, Um, but we're at least one buyer short in the lamb um, job, so it just brings it back a little bit. Um, The the heaviest lambs topped at $200, but heavy lambs $180 to $200, and then trade lambs uh, anywhere from $150 to $176, light trade $70 to $102, and then light um, light lambs to kill, $88 to $102. Uh, most of those will go to the Middle East. Uh, restockers in those light lambs, 85 to to 100 And then in the light trade lambs, anywhere from 104 to $134 a head. Over in the mutton yard, uh, just a few more sheep, but still very small numbers, 777 mutton. Uh, this job was also cheaper. And uh, the majority of these sheep Sort of making any well the, the very heavy sheep made forty eight to fifty eight dollars and there's seriously limited limited interest in those big fat um, corridor um, crossbred ewes. Uh, heavy sheep forty two to eighty dollars and then lighter, 36 to $70. I did see sheep sold as low as $22 to go back to the paddock. Oh. So a little bit of um, correction going on over there. I think the um, numbers will tell a story over the next month or so in that uh, department.
1: I love those numbers, Richard. 777 sheep. <laughs>
17: <laughs> well, that's what they told me.
1: <laughs> okay, I'll talk to you Friday. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, 777 sheep. Not a bad start to a poker hand, eh? And Richard Bailey will check the mainland markets as well when he does return on Friday, plus the store cattle sale. Now, tomorrow, big edition of the country are coming to you from the National Dairy Conference, which is being held at Rest Point in Hobart over the next couple of days. Big welcome to all the visitors coming from the mainland to uh, to Hobart and to Tasmania in general, a lot of them up in the north of the state at the moment, having a look at dairy farms. Now, uh, the conference has already started in a way with those visits to the dairy farms in the north, and Meg Powell and Fiona Breen will be at the conference over the next two days to bring you the latest on the dairy industry, all the issues, the challenges ahead, and uh, what of the future too for dairy farmers. And uh, we'll bring you some of those great stories from that conference full broadcast tomorrow from midday and on friday we'll take you back there as well don't forget abc rural online and abc rural facebook page plenty of great stories and we'll have a podcast up for you of today's program very shortly catch you after midday tomorrow